Hello and welcome to the Movement Disorder Podcast. In this series, we'll be exploring the finer side of things with some of the great minds of movement disorders. We will get to hear interesting information and history to understand how we got to be here. We'll explore the approach to diagnosis and management, the things that your books would not tell you. And most importantly, get tips and tricks that will get you a step ahead in the game. My fourth year of medical school at the University of Michigan, we had really excellent neuroradiologists. And I wanted to spend time with them. I think I may have been with them for somewhere between a, a month or two, somewhere in that time. And I did neuropathology that year. I did a 10-week experience in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in England with John Walton and Peter Hudson and actually a guy who became a friend of mine from Mayo Clinic. And what I really liked was the time I spent in radiology. At the same time, there was a neurosurgery resident. I won't give you his name because this wasn't really such a uh, well-done day that we had. We were doing pneumoencephalograms. We did not have MRI scans at that time. And I think CAT scans were just coming in to play. So when we wanted to evaluate people with hydrocephalus, we would have them sit in a special chair. And there was a little square in the back, about one foot square, that we would actually remove. That's where we would do the LP in their back. Mm. And we would prep them with betadine and then wipe that off with alcohol and then do the lumbar puncture after getting a consent form. Mm. And I think consent forms might have been mostly verbal then, I don't know. They were probably not forms or maybe they were just a note saying I got a consent, not sure. Anyway, there was one lady that the neurosurgery resident was going to do a lumbar puncture on and the idea was you would take off about 10 or 15 cc's of spinal fluid and then we would push in 10 or 15 cc's of air and we would take out some spinal fluid and then the air would bubble up since they were sitting upright up toward the fourth ventricle. And if you had them just right and you did it slowly, the air would actually get into the fourth ventricle. And then we could then somersault the patient and get the air into the lateral ventricles. Somersault on a chair or, or in how this would you chair, somersault in the Yeah, patient? this is a chair. Well, in the old days, we used to have them sitting in a wooden chair and then two of us would pick them up and we would actually somersault them 
So with there the would chair be stuff, yeah, just we would, the basin? Yeah, yeah. well, no, we, it would be a little chair like this that we're sitting in now, <laughs> okay. and we would rotate them. I mean, that's what I learned in England, and I think it was one of the early neurosurgeons that found out, I can't remember his name offhand, that in head trauma cases, you could see air in the ventricles in some cases. If the air came in and got into the spinal fluid uh, and they were, I don't know, moved in different positions, you could actually get air into the lateral ventricles. And they would use that technique then to identify tumors in the brain in the ventricular system. You know, I, you can imagine um, Cori plexus papillomas and other tumors that were obstructing the ventricles now and then. At any rate, that was the whole point of this exercise. So we wanted to see if this lady really did have normal pressure hydrocephalus. I don't know the whole history, but Lance was, excuse me, I gave you his first name, was telling me about the case and he and I, he was a year senior to me, and he was also from Ohio State University. And I'm from University of Michigan, and we were arch rivals in everything. So we used to not even want to talk to each other. But he was telling- But he was working at Michigan University. Yes, he was in the Department of Neurosurgery. As a neurosurgery resident, I was a neurology, I was, maybe he was a couple years older than me because I was like two years away from being a neurology resident. Anyway, we were doing this rotation and he was talking to me about his, how great he was. And he was taking off, like, I think he was filling up. We, we usually did a CSF evaluation when we did that. So we would collect the first tube and send it off to the lab. And I think he was collecting the first tube and I may have told you this offhand once, but we were both sitting there. He was in the radiology, you know, lead apron kind of thing. Uh, and the procedure was obviously supposed to be sterile. And he had gloves on. And all of a sudden, uh, the lady who was facing away from us, and we were talking like this, and he was collecting the fluid, all of a sudden took a really deep breath. And it was something like <gasps> And she didn't exhale. Mm. And we thought that was kind of strange. So he was sterile, so I went around and I looked at this lady and both of her pupils were dilating to, I don't know, maybe about nine millimeters. <laughs> and I tried to wake her up and she was out. And I said, she's fixed and dilated. And he came around and looked. So the question I asked when I talked to our residents or medical students, what's your next move? What are you gonna do when something like this happens? You doing a lumbar puncture? Somebody has immediately fixed and dilating her pupils. Push him 
wore a CSF bag well, because of the brainstem herniation, try to well, push it back out? Well, I don't out. know how he could do that, but <laughs> so he yelled at Millie. Millie was the little uh, technician lady uh, that was always getting super excited. So her arms were waving in the air, you know, quick, get us some sterosaline or D5W or what it, lactated ringers. I don't know what it was. So she got a bottle. Back then it was a bottle, not a bag. And so we ripped off the top of that thing. And he says, give me a what, uh, 20cc or 40cc syringe. It was glass. You know, so he was holding one end and I was pouring this in. And then he put the plunger or the other end of it and he, it had a lure lock adapter. So he took out the uh, stylet and screwed this in and pushed 20 mLs of lactated ringers or whatever it was as fast as he could. And uh, within about five seconds, we could hear the lady go, <sighs> you know, so, so I, I went around and I looked and both pupils were coming down and she was starting to respond and I said, <laughs> I said, okay, the pupils aren't dilated anymore. And he was on the phone and he got a, an operating room. He, he said, we have to take her to the OR. Now, he's a resident. And, you know, he didn't have to go through anybody. He just said, get me an operating room. And back then, the residents did procedures and the attendings sometimes were there. <laughs> sometimes. It, sometimes. If it wasn't there. a golf day or something. Well, <laughs> no, no, I mean, for something like this, I'm sure an attending would have come as the middle of the day. Uh, but I remember operating with a neurosurgery resident in my internship and the it was a, uh, a tumor in the back of the brain. Uh, that's another story. Uh, I remember that really well. And he just called up the attending and told him what happened. But anyway, back to this lady, uh, we did an angiogram right away in the next room. The pneumoencephalography room was in one room and there was a connecting door. And we just wheeled her in there and um, she had a big uh, glioma, a butterfly glioma right across the corpus callosum. Uh, since we didn't have a scan to see what the problem was, you couldn't see something like that on a plain x-ray. Although we did use plain x-rays to see about shift um, of uh, the brain from right to left or left to right. And this is before CAT scans became popular. Yes, because we used to, you know, roughly, if you're age 50, you have a 50% chance of having a calcified pineal gland mm -hmm. and habendular commissures, which are in the midline. So if there was more than a 0.3 centimeter shift, you knew that there was a significant shift. We were really good at getting that head lined up straight. Lined up straight. Uh, but since it's in the middle of the brain, relatively, you can turn the brain and, um, shift. and it wouldn't move that much. Uh, the problem was then seeing the, the um, inner table of the skull and you'd just measure with a, with a meter, uh, not a meter stick, but a centimeter ruler. And if it was off uh, like three millimeters, you knew it was, or even maybe a little less, two and a half maybe. So that was, that was then. Um, anyway, I think she did fairly well. People with 
big gliomas like that don't do very well even today. But I'll never forget that. Um, and when I tell other people that, they think it's, uh, they think I'm making it up. But <laughs> I was there and it really happened. And it's, uh, it was amazing how quick it happened. Uh, speaking of that, there was another time when I was in Philadelphia that we had an elderly private physician that wanted to do a lumbar puncture on one of his patients. I think he was a neurologist, but he didn't want to do things like lumbar punctures anymore. Right. So he was, we, I don't say that we kind of humored this guy, but he wanted to do things and, you know, we didn't think he should be doing those things. So I, I asked him, he wanted, he said, would you please do a lumbar puncture on this patient for me? And I was probably about your stage, you know, you know, having been out of residency about that long. And um, at any rate, uh, I said, no, uh, I think the patient has increased intracranial pressure. You want to do a lumbar puncture to see if the patient has a brain tumor. I say, well, why don't, you know, uh, you didn't do a lumbar puncture to find that out. So then he asked other people, and everybody I know said no. But there was one neurosurgeon there, this is at Jefferson uh, Medical College, who said okay. And he did, and the patient herniated. And so they quickly had to take him to the OR. And, and uh, you know, so my chairman came back to him and said, what were you thinking about? And he said, well, if a neurologist, you know, consults me and asks me to do a procedure, I'll do it for him, you know. And he says, well, you better think that over twice, because if you don't think you should have it done on you or anybody you know, then why do it? So anyway, actually, the people I worked with were really good. Uh, this fellow that at least figured out what to do. Oh, the other thing he did, once the patient herniated, he said, let's flip her upside down. So we turned her so her head was down. That was with the resident? What, that was the resident, and the, the first And the chairs had the, cap cap yeah, capability, had the capability to turn over to and... Somersault, because you were able to somersault them. Because the other thing that we did is once we got enough air in the upper part of the lateral ventricles, we wanted to get it into the temporal horn. So you had to forward somersault them so that the ear would then go back into the temporal horns because that's where there was a lot of you know, um, problem with enlarged ventricles and people that had, let's say, Alzheimer's disease and other things. Cool. So, so anyway, that was uh, one of the things I did one day. I, I have one other thing to say. It's remarkable how fascinating the world of movement disorders is. And just to look at one facet of it can mesmerize you. I hope you're as thrilled as I am about today's episode. Your feedbacks and suggestions are highly appreciated. So write to us at unmc.mdpodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at danishbahati underscore md. That is at D-A-N-I-S-H-B-H-A-T-T-I underscore M-D. Hope to see you next time. Ciao, ciao.